Yeah, good evening, everybody. My name's Robin Archer, and I'm the director of the Ralph Miliband program here at the London School of Economics. And I'd like to welcome you all uh, to the latest of our lectures in our series, Movement, Protest and Social Change. And it's a particular pleasure tonight to be able to introduce Professor James Jasper from uh, the City University of New York. Um, Professor Jasper studied first uh, economics at Harvard University, and then he did a master's and a PhD in sociology um, at Berkeley. And he's taught at a number of leading universities in the United States, uh, New York University, Columbia, Princeton, uh, the New School, I think, and, and now, as I said, is at the Graduate School of CUNY um, in New York. And I think it's safe to say that you've carved out a, a distinctive voice and a, and a striking scholarly agenda, um, one that focuses in particular on the role of emotion um, in politics in general, but in the study of social movements in particular. So we can look forward tonight to hearing about fear and um, joy and uh, disgust and a range of other emotions and how they affect political life. Um, he's got an amazing array of books. He's, he's produced, um, both on his own and with collaborators, about ten books, and I'm not going to go through them all tonight, but I just want to list three, which I think brings out some of uh, the work that's relevant to his talk tonight. So he has a, a book, The Art of Moral Protest, which has been much discussed. A second volume, which uh, he's collaborated with other authors, is called Passionate Politics. And most recently, just last year, he published with Stanford University Press, Contention in Politics, Political Opportunities and the Emergence of Protest. Well, uh, James is going to be talking for about 50 minutes and then in the usual way we'll open the uh, floor to questions and discussion. So I ask you to join me in welcoming our speaker, Professor James Jasper. Uh, thank you, Robin, for that very nice introduction. Is this is it on? Yes? All right, good. Um, I, I want to make one simple point tonight. Uh, our culture's view of emotions has, uh, has changed in the last several decades. Um, having emotions, especially having strong emotions, once excluded people from citizenship. But now, in fact, emotions are more and more a requirement of citizenship. For at least 2,500 years, when an elite wanted to exclude a group from political participation, the reason was almost always uh, that they were too emotional. Uh, for the ancient Athenian, slaves were excluded because they were not in control of their passions. Uh, so much so that the Greeks bequeathed us uh, tropes uh, such as reason as the master and passions as the slaves, uh, emotions as the slaves in what was uh, one of the earliest of uh, many very self-serving models, uses of emotion, emotional models in politics. Well, if non-citizens are a little frightening, they're a lot more frightening when they band together into crowds. Here, too, the Greeks, uh, Euripides, gave us the defining image of the mob, the bacchants who tore apart Pentheus, uh, the king, in their kind of ecstatic frenzy, uh, it included Pentheus's own mother, 
who proudly carried his head back to the, the palace with her. Um, crowds were thought to drive people insane, pushing them from reason into passion. And as this example suggests, it has been women through most of uh, Western history, at least, uh, who've been kept out of politics because they supposedly felt rather than instead of thinking. The great crowd theorists like Freud and Gustave Le Bon uh, describe mobs, crowds, as feminine in their suggestibility, in their excitability. And most arguments against women's suffrage in the late 19th and early 20th century centered on women's emotional irrationality. The working class was treated much the same way in the 19th century, as an unthinking mass who were apt to do frightening things whenever they formed groups. So from the lofty perspective of elites, but even from the point of view of the middle classes, uh, these mobs were unpredictable. Even though today uh, we can look back at these crowds and discover uh, that there were very predictable patterns to their targets, a method to their supposed raid. <coughs> Immigrants, too, in the United States were incapable of reasoning, it was said, uh, and followed their base instincts, their bestial urges, their passions. Uh, swarthy Mediterranean peoples especially seemed all too primitive. Um, so were Jews. And in fact, Jewish women were especially typed in the 19th century, 19th century America, uh, as dangerously oversexed, a stereotype, uh, by the way, that has been thoroughly eradicated uh, in the U.S., indeed transformed into its opposite, namely the frigid Jewish-American princess uh, in a kind of proof of Jewish assimilation into calm, passionless citizenship in the United States. In the more enlightened days of the mid-20th century and under the objectivity of social science, uh, it was no longer particular genders, classes, ethnic groups, racial ethnic groups, who were slaves to their passions. In what was known as mass society theory in the mid-20th century, almost anyone could fall prey to the emotions of the moment. All this required was a kind of rootless, anomic lack of social position, social identity, uh, an absence of social bonds through formal organizations to the rest of society, and especially to the state. Now, uh, under the objective gaze of social science, crowds resulted from underlying problems in the social structure, but crowds were still slaves to their passions. Now, it seems to me these images of the uh, passionate and therefore insane crowd should be familiar. They haven't entirely disappeared even today. As always, they are pushed onto strangers, people we either don't know or don't like, and so consider dangerous. At least in the U.S., fairly ambivalent media coverage of the Arab Spring over the last couple of years tended to favor large groups of young men, running around shouting, firing guns into the air, under the sway, apparently, of momentary feelings, and so not entirely in control of themselves. Even today, anyone who protests, who raises their voices, who expresses anger, is considered or apt to be considered out of control. The category of dangerous and emotional 
almost follows from the act of protesting. Why don't they just vote? Why don't they just write letters to their MPs? At the same time, protesters are also dismissed as ineffectual. Again, because they seem to be just letting off steam through their emotions, not promoting well-thought-out politics and policies. So the categories, oddly, of ineffectual and dangerous turn out to be surprisingly compatible. (coughs) The crowds uh, don't know what they're doing, essentially, while, on the other hand, those who control the crowds are all too crafty, all too calculating, demagogues who are masters of emotional manipulation. In fact, the real dangers in today's world, as conveyed through the media, are secretive groups like al-Qaeda, who are coldly calculating and not at all emotional, apparently. If they were emotional, they could be dismissed as crazy, just as, in (coughs) fact, most radical Islamists, even bin Laden, were dismissed up until 9-11. Young people, even today, continue to be stereotyped as immature, uh, not in control of their emotions, and susceptible to crazy activities like getting out in the streets and protesting. Uh, We see this again and again in a long series of moral panics over the music they listen to, over uh, their hairstyles, the clothes they wear, all the other incomprehensible, disgusting things that young people uh, apparently do. But our images of emotions are changing. We hear today uh, a lot about emotional intelligence, uh, about the strength of fast thinking through emotions rather than slow thinking through calculations. Uh, We hear that women make better managers than men do because they can listen, they can empathize, they're sympathetic to their employees. And in general, the trend in psychology over the last decade or two has been to understand that cognition is deeply embedded in emotions, in the kinds of processing that we do through our emotions. And that our emotions, in fact, are usually uh, thoughtful, functional, uh, even sometimes wise in ways that our cognition is not. It turns out that emotions are vital to how we think and operate in the world. Emotions help us evaluate our situation. Uh, They help us prepare for action. They're a way of paying attention constantly to the world around us. It's also through emotions that the world matters to us. They make the world a living, enchanted place so that we care enough about it to go on doing things, go on with our lives. So as a way of picturing emotions, I'd like to emphasize what I call feeling-thinking processes, namely the hundreds of ways that our nervous systems receive and process information, the ways in which they help us assess how things are going for us, in the world, whether they're going well, whether they're going poorly, and the ways in which they prepare us for actions uh, that we might take in response to the world around us, as well as reminding us of all of our solidarities and aversions so that we feel toward other groups, places, things, ideas, and so on. These little processes include uh, things like sensations through our skin, through our hair follicles, uh, and things like peripheral vision, Uh, subtle and not-so-subtle changes in our biochemistry, 
muscle reactions, uh, such as in our faces, our facial expressions and displays of emotions, uh, though also in our guts, uh, the innumerable nerve firings that are constantly happening in our body, all the way up through more conscious verbal labels uh, for these emotions. In fact, the conscious labels uh, are only the final product of an elaborate set of dozens or hundreds of these feeling-thinking processes. Uh, we can even think without these verbal labels, without being conscious of it. Most of our feelings, uh, most of the way in which we process information is, in fact, uh, beneath our conscious awareness. We've been misled in social science by, again, roughly 2,500 years of over-concentration on the very dramatic emotions, such as anger, such as a kind of paralyzing, panicky fear, uh, the kinds of emotions that can derail a political project uh, or a collaboration or can later lead us, into, lead us to regret something that we've done. Violent anger is the usual paradigm for emotions, or has been for thousands of years, the paradigm emotion in politics, and the central charge against the crowd. Uh, but anger, the gut-level, quick, violent anger, uh, is, is really an exception uh, in the list of emotions out of hundreds of emotions that we have. Mostly, we have emotions that help us do what we want, or which define what we want the long-lasting allegiances of love, of trust, of respect, which attach us to other people, or the hatred, the disrespect, the mistrust that push us away from other people. Emotions also inform our moral actions. They guide our moral intuitions, tell us uh, what's right and what's wrong, uh, through pride and shame, through uh, compassion and empathy and a kind of intuitive impulse toward fairness and justice. And I use what is a very awkward term, feeling thinking, uh, because the same or similar raw materials of sensations and recognition are used to construct both relatively abstract conscious thoughts and to construct what we think of as emotions. Thinking and feeling overlap much more than they differ. Social scientists have been actually very slow to acknowledge this. Too much social science still relies on a kind of idealism in which uh, thoughts replace the act of thinking, uh, finished products replace processes, uh, in which we isolate frames and identities by ripping them out of the context in which people actually experience them and use them. We search for underlying codes, narratives, and so on. And once we've done this, once we've ripped thoughts out of their context, we contrast the thoughts with emotions, which is how people actually experience thoughts and, and uh, work, work with thoughts, use uh, thinking processes. It's a form uh, of the old mind versus body contrast that's been with us, unfortunately, for a very a long time. Okay. That's all, in a way, preface. Um, because what I want to talk about is what this new image of emotions, this new uh, sensibility about emotions, means for how we think about protests and about democracy. What if, what if we view our feelings as ways of thinking instead of interferences with thinking? Can we understand better what democracy is, 
uh, how it functions, uh, what citizens want, and how they act. And in a more normative vein, can emotions help us protect, repair, and perhaps extend democracy, rather than always seeming to undermine democracy? Well, I, I, I wouldn't be here, I wouldn't be say, have asked that question unless I thought so, um, because it turns out that human dignity, the core of citizenship and of democracy, is not simply a political accomplishment, it's an emotional accomplishment, that I want, and I want to explain uh, what I mean by that. The normal rules of public discourse and democracy uh, have no way to take into account the intensity of opinions, the intensity of our, uh, our, our views. A vote is a vote, no matter how strongly it's felt. Uh, in some cases, a letter to your MP is taken as a sign of intense feeling, but uh, more often it's just taken as being simply representative of a certain number of people with the same opinion. One letter equals 50 votes. It's a sort of arithmetic uh, relationship. Enter the protest movement, to which citizens turn when they, in fact, feel strongly about an issue, more strongly than voting will allow them to express. Protest used to be the tool of those who were excluded from participation. And the greatest social movements in history to this day remain uh, movements about citizenship. Who gets included? The quality of that inclusion. Uh, what kind of respect as well as formal participation is there? Uh, the labor movement, the women's movement, the civil rights movement in the U.S., uh, immigrant rights today. These are all about who, is, who has the right to be a citizen. But in fact, over time, as more and more categories of people have been given suffrage, uh, the social movement is now more often used to sing signal a very strong moral commitment, a st very strong feeling of moral commitment, above and beyond that uh, of routine voting. Social movements help us articulate our moral intuitions, our visions, to formulate them in a way that we can share with others. And it seems to me that indignation is the core of that opinion, the heart of protest. It's what gets people into the streets and keeps them there. It's what allows them to break out of their daily, everyday routines to try to change things. So social movements through and through are animated by feeling thinking processes, usually beginning with negative feelings. It's often easier to express our discomfort, our disapproval, uh, our moral disgust, than it is to articulate some principle or ideology which justifies that discomfort or begins to outline new alternatives. This is why social movements are almost always protest movements against something at first and only gradually uh, being for something as well. Negative emotions grab our attention more powerfully than positive emotions. A feeling of threat or of disgust or of shame. But in the end, of course, these negative emotions aren't enough. They can, uh, they can lead to despair as easily as they can lead to action. They can lead to cynicism uh, as well as to hope. So there has to be positive emotions as well as the negative ones. So social movements are, in a way, emotional machines built on indignation anger on the one hand, and hope on the other. 
they have these two emotional poles, one positive, one negative, uh, like a kind of moral battery that pushes people away from the negative and pulls them toward the positive. Powerful rhetorics, powerful ideologies almost always have this kind of battery. Uh, the contrast, one of the, the great uh, rhetorical contrasts uh, and social movement motivators of the 20th century, uh, the contrast between capitalism and communism uh, uh, was, was perhaps the best example, and I'll quote uh, Ralph Miliband. In a passage, it shows, I think, considerable sadness over the loss of this hope. The coming into being of the communist alternative to capitalism had nurtured and sustained successive generations of people on the left, and it seemed to them to provide a concrete, tangible proof that an altogether different and immeasurably better society than capitalism could ever achieve was not only possible in a remote future, but was actually being built. Now, although Ralph speaks here of proof, it seems to me that communism provided something much more emotional than that. It provided hope, uh, inspiration, admiration, enthusiasm, sometimes a sense of urgency, sometimes a reassuring sense of inevitability. Positive feelings about the alternative always heighten the negative feelings about the present. The proof that communism provided was a set of feelings, not a set of facts, which, let's, let's face it, were always a bit dodgy. Um, the global justice movement today, the Occupy movement, uh, the Indignados, they can tap into plentiful outrage about economic injustice, but their limitation has been provide, painting a picture, providing a picture of a hopeful alternative. They need, in a way, their own version of communism. So protest movements march and rally in order to send messages. Messages to themselves, to their own members very often, but even more messages to new audiences, to outsiders. Uh, but what messages? Well, the great uh, historical sociologist Charles Tilley, in what I think was his cleverest concept, said that protesters engage in what he called wunk displays, W-U-N-C. It, it's, it's an ugly term but um, it, it's memorable, I, I hope. Um, they try to demonstrate four things. They try to demonstrate their moral worth. Uh, they try to demonstrate how unified they are, how numerous, and how committed to the cause. And these boil down to moral goodness and political strength. W and C, worth and commitment, suggest that these are admirable people, morally, emotionally vibrant people, while U and N, unity and numbers, suggest uh, their power, signal that they are strong enough to be taken seriously. They're a force to be reckoned with. Now, of course, it's difficult to be both good and powerful, since strength is, in fact, dangerous, at least dangerous to others. Uh, so you use your power as a kind of threat, uh, and you're never quite as good when you're threatening others. others. Other people don't like to be threatened, and they, they, don't, uh, they don't think as highly of you then. But it's through these kinds of displays that protesters hope to impose a kind of moral battery on authorities and the broader public. 
the attraction, on the one hand, of morally worthy groups that you can admire and sympathize with, but the fear that they will get out of control and begin to look like the crowds of crowd theory, the crowds that elites are afraid of and still imagine. If authorities make concessions to the protesters, the threat dissolves. On the other hand, if the threat is strong enough and the group really is destructive, then the authorities may do the opposite and intervene to eliminate the group. So aggressive, powerful strategies are high risk, greater potential payoffs, but greater potential also for calamity. We don't, uh, we don't usually think of Machiavelli as a theorist of emotions, but he got this dilemma just right, I think. Do you want to be loved or do you want to be feared? The trade-off applies to protest groups as it does to all strategic players, and there's no easy answer to it. Now, today, protest movements have lost some of their power to scare elites, which puts them, in fact, at a disadvantage, since it's that threat which attracts the elite's attention and typically is what has won concessions for the downtrodden in the past, as I'm sure you heard when uh, my colleague Fran Piven was here. This is, this, she's made a lifetime, devoted a lifetime to demonstrating this. So the discouragement of public displays of anger over the last couple hundred years has been both a blessing and a curse for, pro, for social movements, for efforts at social justice. The price of admission to democratic processes has been a kind of diminution of public expressions of anger. Yet anger, at the same time, is a component, a major component of the indignation that's central to expressing moral disapproval. Citizenship consists partly of this emotional rechanneling, but also this kind of emotional lessening as well. Okay. A generation of great social movement scholars, including Tilly, tried to ignore protesters' emotions, uh, just pretended they didn't exist, essentially since they feared that emotions would make protest movements, social movements, appear irrational. So they accepted half of crowd theory, that emotions make people irrational, while rejecting the other half, that protesters are emotional. I suggest we reverse this. We acknowledge that protesters are, of course, emotional, but not accept that this renders them irrational in any way. The Tilly generation was very concerned to show that protest is normal politics by unusual means, carried out by people just like us. By us, in fact, very often. I think that intuition is right, but in fact it turns out that normal people have emotions. Now I'd like to turn to other components of democracy uh, in addition to the protest movement. Um, the main components of democracy are usually seen as participation and protection. People are supposed to have some influence over the state and its choices, and they're supposed to be protected from arbitrary actions by their own and other states. Both participation and protection depend on a sense of citizens um, as, as having basic human dignity, uh, worthy of pride, worthy of respect, uh, as ends in themselves, Kant would say, and not as means for other people to exploit. To grant people this kind of dignity, central to democracy, 
is to feel a certain way about them. It's not to think about them, to cogitate about them. It's to feel something about them. Now, the great fear of democracy has been that too much participation undermines protection, whether the rights of minorities or uh, the property of elites. Uh, in other words, that f the, the fear that democracy degenerates into mob rule, a bargain between corrupt demagogues and the emotional masses who do their dirty work. It's been the great fear of democracy, again, for at least 2,500 years. Now, perhaps the greatest difference between ancient images of democracy and modern ones is that the emphasis in democracy has shifted from participation to protection. Uh, Participation worked for the ancients primarily because it was restricted to wealthy male citizens. Uh, it has shifted in the modern world to the protection of private life, a space in which people can make a variety of choices about their lives without disapproval or interference by the state. Along with this has gone a higher moral valuation placed on private life in general, on daily material existence, in the modern world. We're, we're proud of uh, who we are as private citizens and not simply who we are as, as public citizens. Um, one facet of this is our emotional life, which mostly occurs in private settings and through face-to-face -face interactions with friends, family, uh, co-workers, and so on. Now, this revaluation of the, of the private sphere, like the revaluation of emotions, is linked to women's growing influence in political life. They were once forced to restrict their activities to the private sphere. And in doing so, uh, over time, they sort of became experts in emotions, uh, better able to read other people through their emotional expressions, uh, better able to get what they wanted through the use of emotions to their own emotional displays, uh, and sometimes through the manipulation of other people's emotions. So there's been a push and a pull here in the modern world. As we've recognized the value of emotional intelligence, we've often turned to women to explain emotions to, uh, to us men. And as women have gained more and more rights and participation, they've brought with them a keener awareness of many emotional processes. They've also, I should add, been pioneers in the study of emotions, the scholarly study of emotions. Anyway, the word I think that sums up democracy best is compassion, which contains respect for others, an acknowledgement of others' humanity, uh, a sympathy for the many kinds of suffering that life brings. It includes acknowledgement of human complexity, of ambivalence, human ignorance, human mistakes. Uh, it's, it's modest in a way relying on nothing more than that shared humanity. Or even beyond uh, humanity, uh, a shared ability to live a life, which in fact encompasses other species as well as humans. Other species can suffer in much the same way that humans can. Uh, they can have some feeling of purpose, just as, as we can. They can develop capacities uh, to further their own ends, just as humans do. Again, Women uh, in polls uh, and surveys tend to be more compassionate than men, we're told. And again, the increasing participation of women in politics over the last hundred or so years has helped to spread this kind of this democratic sensibility, not only in certain kinds of social movements, but in state policies, 
such as support for the poor and the sick. The opposite of compassion is a cluster of feelings such as contempt, uh, disgust, or even a more active uh, humiliation. These are the kinds of treatments that help motivate protest. And they're the kinds of treatment that must be especially prevented in a democracy. There's a lot of work still to be done. Uh, even in the supposedly most democratic nations, there are daily humiliations of certain individuals and certain groups. Um, to take an example that I've experienced uh, in the last 24 hours, anyone who has flown since 9-11 has suffered a mild form of humiliation, forced to empty your pockets, uh, be patted down in some cases uh, in the United States uh, to take your <coughs> shoes off. Uh, it's a little mysterious why shoes are so dangerous uh, in the U.S., but nowhere else, but there you have it. Um, even these apparently mild forms uh, of humiliation can feel a lot more sinister. For instance, if the police stop you merely because of the color of your skin or the sound of your last name, Prejudice and suspicion in the name of security don't feel any better uh, and may feel worse because you have fewer rights to protest that kind of treatment. So there's still many issues of humiliation and indignities. Uh, back to democracy. In addition to participation and protection, another facet of democracy is transparency, much less often emphasized in theoretical treatments. But there are good emotional reasons to include this in our definition of democracy. One of the greatest triggers of indignation is when a procedure that is meant to protect you, uh, to process your complaints, unfolds in a way that you consider unfair, adding an entirely new procedural grievance to your original grievance. It makes matters much worse uh, when you go and you complain and it turns out that uh, you're treated terribly because you've, you've filed a complaint. And ironically, under democracy, there are more procedures like that, far more. There are actually more chances that we will grow indignant over how we are treated. This is one of the great paradoxes of democracy. Uh, it provides hope for change and actually increases the amount of protest and pressure because it's increased that hope and the expectations. Social movements are much more likely to form uh, as democracy appears in a society than it is in the most authoritarian, repressive uh, regimes. We expect more, I guess, in, uh, under, under uh, uh, a regime that claims to be democratic. Well, once we acknowledge that citizenship is defined by affective bonds as well as by legal and cognitive categories, we can worry about certain beings who've been ignored in the traditional liberal image of citizenship, of democracy, beings who can't participate in the great discourse that we think of as democracy. The philosopher Martha Nussbaum talks about these frontiers of justice beyond which lie people with severe disabilities, especially mental disabilities who, who can't vote or even speak normally. She also includes non-human species, uh, many of which we have bred to be part of our community for thousands of years, clearly are part of our human community. Uh, domestic animals are part of our affective world, but obviously 
cannot speak on their own behalf, cannot form protest movements. She also includes citizens of other nations whose interests are affected by our political decisions, our consumer decisions. We feel, we, we feel a debt of compassion to all these others. We, we recognize at some level that we owe them something, uh, that we should allow them or encourage them to flourish in their own ways. And I say in their own ways because Nussbaum is quick to say uh, that some species are capable of living fuller lives than others with more volition, more awareness, uh, capacity to move, to reason, and so forth. All of which, in fact, gives us more imaginative empathy for them. And there's a fine line between our empathy for animals, which motivates us for our own purposes, and the capacities of other species to live full lives, which we learn about through science, not merely from keeping pets. Okay, in addition, that's a bit of a digression, I realize, in addition to the participation and protection and transparency aspects of democracy, what if we adopted this kind of capabilities approach in which everyone had the right to, a, to develop a whole range of capabilities, uh, including life, health, bodily integrity, uh, some control over our lives, uh, but also capacities for play and imagination, uh, for interaction with other species, uh, including both long-term attachments and short-term reactions like indignation, surprise, and, and other emotions. Well, it's no accident that the same philosopher, Martha Nussbaum, uh, who helped develop the capabilities approach to justice, to citizenship, has also been at the forefront of the philosophy of emotions. She and other uh, neo-Aristotelians suggest that moral actions result from how we are trained or how our intuitions are trained over a lifetime. So that when the time comes for action, uh, we don't stop and think, oh, what should we do? We don't calculate uh, the greater good or search for the categorical imperative. Um, we just act. We feel, we, we, uh, we think through our feelings. We use feeling thinking processes. These aren't instincts in some biological, ingrained sense of it, but they reflect feeling, thinking processes and how we've developed them over the course of our lives. These lead us to certain kinds of actions. So rescuers during World War II, for example, didn't stop and calculate the risks they were taking in harboring Jews and other victims. Instead, their, particular, their vision of humanity, their feelings, uh, their trained compassion simply forced them to act without thinking. It turns out uh, it was a very quick form of thinking, automatic, and uh, as far as I know, not a single one of them ever regretted it, even though it was a momentary, very quick decision for most of them. Compassion reflects a lifetime of training, and especially early training, perhaps, just as the absence of compassion also reflects a lifetime of training. Uh, then we come to public deliberation, uh, central to democratic decision-making, and in fact thoroughly studied thanks to an army of researchers inspired by Jürgen Habermas and others uh, who have found plentiful cases of deliberation in world social forums, uh, parliaments, and smaller, uh, less formal groups. 
At the most formal end of the spectrum of deliberative democracy, we have to turn to emotional issues. I should say even at the most uh, formal end. We have to turn to emotional issues such as respect and dignity to understand how, for example, legislatures work. Uh, Since compromise and feeling toward your fellow legislators is crucial to democracy. How can we avoid the kind of legislative deadlock that we've seen, for example, in the U.S. Congress in recent years, as uh, the Republican Party has been taken over more and more by fairly uncompromising zealots? So just as a broader form of respect and compassion helps citizens function democratically, so trust and respect among legislators is absolutely necessary, rather than threat manipulation, deception, and so on. Processes that are also an inevitable part of of, of politics, but which make deals and compromise quite a bit harder. Emotions are central to deliberation of all kinds. Even though we tend to imagine deliberation as some kind of uh, lofty, calm, almost mathematical search for the truth, and philosophers like Habermas And uh, John Rawls have suggested all sorts of ways that uh, this kind of deliberation might work by basically stripping human beings of what makes them human, taking them out of their context in in order to participate in these lofty debates without any passions, without any interests. It makes for a nice book in Rawls's case, uh, or a nice library of books in Habermas's case. Uh, But that's where this idea will stay. With real humans, rather than the stick figures of liberal theory, debate involves emotions. There are short-run emotional reactions, say, to a speech itself, or to information, or to events. The short-run kinds of reactions that crowd theorists emphasized. Then there are also long-run commitments to groups, to ideals, to nations, to, uh, and, and so on, that orient us as human beings, guide our political projects, uh, warn us against going down certain paths and guide us down other paths, and generally provide the goals of action. Okay. If emotions help us understand the basis for democracy, they also can help us understand its failures. We've seen a fashion shift uh, in the last few years from uh, castigating emotions to admiring and embracing them. But emotions are every bit as much a part of bad actions as they are of good actions. But that's all right, because we need to get beyond the idea that emotions are either bad in the old vision or necessarily good in the new vision, and instead see emotions as simply normal, pervasive, a part of all human action, part of our toolkit for being human. They're not a normative issue. They're a normal issue. They're going to help us understand bad things as well as good. Now, because one danger in a compassionate world, a fully democratic, compassionate world, is that evil disappears as a trope. Um, In some ways, that's good. Uh, We treat uh, uh, criminals as criminals, and we treat them in sensible ways that are likely to succeed. Uh, rather than treating them as evil and treating them in ways that won't succeed. 
But it also means that we may be slow to recognize real horrors in the world, misdeeds that simply go beyond our moral imagination. Part of the role, uh, part of the point of compassion is to limit our imagination in just that way, to make certain acts unimaginable to us. But what's going to alert us to deep dangers? The kind of dangers that drove Ralph Miliband's parents out of Warsaw and then drove him to this country in 1940. I would hope that compassion for the victims of terrible regimes would push us toward action against them. Murderous regimes like the Nazis, the Khmer Rouge, uh, like Stalin, uh, have all tried very hard to, uh, to hide the extent of their killing in ways that I think would be much harder today in a world of uh, mobile phones and the internet. But unfortunately, action doesn't follow automatically from compassion. Although the action that compassion, and I should say, and the action that compassion does encourage is not always the most effective. Yet action to help victims rarely happens without compassion. And this is important to keep in mind as we lose the last generation who knew uh, German and Italian fascism firsthand. Can people be fooled? Uh, can they turn nasty? <coughs> of course. But even the failures of human nature, failures of democracy even, are better understood when we look at their emotional dynamics. If emotions help us negotiate in the world, we can use them to pursue bad ends as well as good. The Nazis ran Germany through emotions, in part. The emotions of hate, to be sure, but even more the emotions of fear, of threat, of enforced compliance. They intimidated their own population. They didn't come to power through the dynamics, uh, through, through crowd dynamics, but through bands of thugs, uh, very carefully organized, and through political deception. There's no sure protection against this kind of regime, but I think understanding it is certainly a first step. The authoritarian personality thesis that some of you uh, are familiar with wasn't entirely wrong. Some people learn to manage their anxieties through a desperate need for certainty, through a kind of rigid black and white thinking. They develop characters that leave them vulnerable to overly simplistic answers to serious problems. But emotions are also, as I said, what allowed the rescuers to do their work during the Holocaust. They had good characters, a, a level of basic human compassion that allowed them to say, what else can I do but help these other human beings? That's one kind of threat uh, that, uh, that a compassionate democracy has some troubles dealing with. The other big threat in today's world, in fact, in some ways more of a threat and a more constant threat, is the growing inequality in most societies really obscene levels of inequality that undermine any basic uh, fairness of life chances. A compassionate moral battery, it seems to me, is hard to generate here, harder to generate in some ways, since there's not such an obvious villain to blame for the inequality. Uh, because the forms of suffering are sometimes less acute than something like the Holocaust, um, and because we've been trained to think of markets as natural systems with their own laws that nobody can really intervene in, rather than being the result 
of deliberate policy decisions and private corporate activities. And in the US and the UK, we've seen the rise also of a meaner type of conservatism, lacking uh, even the minimal sense of obligation of traditional Tories, refusing compassion as a matter of principle. The principle, I suppose, being uh, that compassion should be a private good, an act of charity. But of course, in the private sector, the charitable sector, compassion can, will never have the scope that it can in the hands of the state. And we take our cues for compassion from our political leaders and their policies. If they don't exercise it, we probably won't either, at least we're less likely to. We will develop characters lacking in that compassion that's so crucial for democracy. I've heard people say uh, that emotions in the world of social movements and protest, emotions are less important than uh, economic inequality. But the contrast itself seems wrong-headed. Economic inequality is bad because of its human effects, because it undermines the basic dignity of those in poverty, because it brings humiliation down on those who are not defined as sitting at the table of democracy. And, of course, because it inflates the arrogance of the super wealthy. Inequality does the most damage because we compare ourselves to others, and both sides of the comparison, uh, both, both groups get a distorted image of themselves and of their worth as human beings. So we need to, to, we need to promote compassion, both in our ongoing acknowledgement of other people's humanity and in our short-run reactions to them, so that even when we disagree with them, we don't dismiss them contemptuously as subhuman. So both as social scientists trying to understand why people act uh, the way they do and want what they want, and also as citizens trying to do good and fight the bad, we need to take emotions seriously, to elaborate, develop compassion, to find the right moral batteries to get moral progress going again. And it seems to me that would truly fulfill the promise of socialism that Ralph Miliband felt and cared about so much and devoted his life to. Thank you. Shall I just take questions? Um, do you want to come here? I'll, I'll, I'll okay. grab them for you. So we're, we're open for questions. I think we'll start just with individuals and see how we go. We might cluster them. Can I just see who would like to start? Uh, yes, that gentleman. Just wait for the microphone. Actually, if I, may, I, yes, may we start with some students? I always like to start with two or three students. Uh, well, he may be, but... Uh, it's a public lecture and students could be from all over the place. Um, young people. Yeah. How's that? Is that a better demographic category? We have a special request for young people. <laughs> it's usually In my book, you're young. Yeah. Go ahead. Usually best to start with the first person. Yeah, um, I fully take your point. I think in a lot of cases that we need to start looking at things with emotions as well. Um, where I got slightly confused, not confused, but concerned, is when you tied uh, a rise in uh, caring about protection in democracy uh, with a rise in caring about emotions in our democratic life. Um, the reason why that raised some concerns for me was uh, just in terms of uh, some of the recent work by Jonathan Haidt, uh, where he's looked at people's emotional reactions, in particular in terms of whether they're judging people to be doing immoral things, 
um, and whether they should not be doing them effectively. Whereas he found uh, you know, quite a big difference between sort of East and West. In broad categories, you consider West to be more democratic and the Eastern countries look that less so. Where the Western democracies still maintained an emotional reaction against lots of, lots of his examples, um, but um, did not think that they should be interfered with them because they considered them to be a private life, effectively. So I was just, I wasn't sure why you were tying them together, and I, I thought that maybe it was, it was sort of going in the wrong direction, considering that it seems to be that precisely not using our emotions for our democratic purposes in those cases is allowing us to have democratic protection uh, for these, these sorts of example, yeah. examples. Yeah, my sense of, um, is that too loud? Uh, my sense of, of some of that comparative work is uh, sort of different, uh, different patterns of compassion who we with whom we empathize and, and do not. So um, our patterns of what we consider proper behavior, uh, especially a lot of those examples are expectations of women uh, and, and male, male and female gender roles. Uh, now... Uh, I, I, to me, some of the, the distinctions that we find, for example, in his Indian examples um, uh, show a, a distinction that I find personally incompatible with a full level of compassion. But I would also want to say that there's some cultural variation. Um, the direction of, of life, I think, would be that women are trying to organize in India and those uh, traditional gender expectations might disappear there as well. Um, so to me, compassion includes uh, not drawing, involves not drawing such clear distinctions among people such that certain kinds of people are supposed to uh, act in certain ways and others are supposed to act in other ways. But that's, I know, you know somewhat uh, ethnocentric or Western-centric view. Okay, now we've got a special request for young people. So people who self-identify as young should put up their hand. Um, this woman on the, on the edge here. Uh, hi, I had a, a question about um, sort of, I, I mean, I'm from the U.S., and I guess I'm thinking specifically in that context around electoral politics and emotion because there's been some interesting um, things in the last several kind of election cycles. So, you know, Romney being classified as cold and not warm enough, Obama, too, sometimes comes under that criticism. There's sort of the Hillary Clinton, the famous tear that she shed to win votes, sort of showing emotion, you know, in this sort of feminine, but deemed to be feminine way. So I'm just curious about how you see those things intersecting um, in the U.S. context and others, if you have other examples. I just don't know them as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, there is a, there's interesting work on uh, masculine and feminine ways of showing that you're upset. And uh, women uh, are allowed to actually cry, um, have public displays. Men are supposed to show how strong they are by, by choking up and almost tear. You know, their eyes can tear, but tears aren't supposed to roll down their cheeks. Right? <laughs> so they show that they're compassionate, but they're also strong. Um, it's, uh, it's not an easy uh, way to, you know, uh, acting, uh, it's an acting challenge. Um, there's been a lot of work in political science about elections and uh, what, what the proper emotions are and what works and what doesn't. Um, a lot of it is tied to uh, 
advertising. Uh, you know, I'm not. I, I'm not sure whether they have what they say about the positive and the negative, but certainly uh, you see that in ads. Uh, you see um, the dangers of your opponent, uh, images of the Rust Belt and the unemployed versus positive images of hope. I mean, hope was the word for Obama uh, in the last election uh, before he was president. Uh, not so much this time. Uh, but you don't have to display emotions yourself as a candidate, right? You, you, your campaign, your commercials can get those emotions across. It's, your, it's the voters who are supposed to, to feel the things. It doesn't have to be the candidate, him or herself. You don't want a robot, but you want somebody who's strong. Okay. Um, can we have this woman here in the middle with the scarf? Yep, this woman here. We get, a, we get two in a row here, bingo. Are, are there two in a row? Yeah, the woman next to um, I was just going to ask, I think, I'm not sure if I got it right, but you said something along the lines of that emotions sometimes push certain realities out of our moral imagination, I think was the phrase you used. But surely, and I assume you're sort of referring to things like um, we are aware that sweatshop labor happens, but we don't. There isn't really widespread social movement to change it. But surely the issue there is that we don't have an emotional connection with these things, and therefore don't try and change it. I don't. I was just wondering if you could elaborate. Yeah. Well, you know, there are movements against sweatshops and for better trade practices and, and so on, and they've been fairly su- successful movements, based on, as you're suggesting, some level of compassion with the people working in those sweatshops in whatever very distant country it is. So I think, you know, as the world has become a more tightly knit place, we have been able to develop compassion for people that we really could ignore more or less in past centuries. So I think that's a positive, certainly a positive development. The lack of moral imagination I was really talking about was, and because this is a standard criticism of liberal democracy, that it, it couldn't deal with the rise of fascism in the 30s because it just couldn't imagine that Hitler could do the things that he said he was going to do, uh, that he was that crazy. So there was a, 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 just an inability to think that things like that would, could really be done uh, because that's really beyond our imagination, I think. So it's, it's true evil like that that I think is outside the, the realm of our, our imagination now, unfortunately. You know, and there are a lot of, you could say Rwanda was a bit the, the same. Um, genocides, although we now have a language for recognizing genocides, defining genocides, um, so we've made improvement. It's still uh, just, for me, I, I will say it's hard for me to imagine some of the things that happen in, you know, in these cases. Right, um, the gentleman with the blue tie um, there, if we can get a microphone to him and then... Um, yeah, and then after that, this woman here. But just answer this question, and then John Strafford, um, Professor, you've ranged widely uh, in your association of uh, subjects with democracy, uh, from uh, protest to participation to compassion. If you were asked to give a definition of democracy for a dictionary, what would it be? Well, I'd love to say compassion, but uh, that would be wishful thinking. 
Um, I, mine wouldn't differ from, I, I don't think mine would be that unusual. I think the dictionary definition is probably, uh, probably emphasizes participation um, in decisions that affect your lives and your state, state decisions. Um, then I think you get the protections as well. That might be part of the definition, although I doubt it. I mean, the traditional Greek definition was ruled by the people, ruled by the many. So it really emphasized participation. As I said, the Greeks emphasized participation much more than protection. Uh, and I think that's probably still the core of a dictionary definition, I guess. Okay, and the woman at the back. Hi. I hope you'll have the compassion to hear both of my questions. The first one is... Um, you said that compassion takes a lifetime of training, and at the same time, um, those who are less compassionate might have a lifetime of uh, experiencing or demonstrating less compassion. And it's so, just a little bit hard to hear you. If you could just speak a hi. bit louder. Okay, so yeah. I have two questions. The first one, you said that compassion takes a lifetime of training, and so those who maybe are less compassionate ha have either experienced less of it or have demonstrated less of it over their lifetime. And so in the context of, say, you know, Obama's first administration, and, you know, he was kind of widely seen as trying to reach across the, the party lines and uh, be a builder and not, um, let's say, a hardball sort of um, uh, fist fighter. And so... In, in that sense, what I think the stretches from your, your earlier point about how much liberal democracy could face fascism, but in the same in the same way, I mean, speaking as a sort of you know left progressive sympathizer, someone who I think I mean I'm, I think I'm a compassionate person. What does one do then in the face of, um, for instance, right now, with uh, you know Republicans who are um, actively trying to. Uh, um, you know, uh, subvert the Consumer Protection Agency or the National Labor Relations Agency through, you know, chicanery um, in the Senate. You know, when, when people are less compassionate people are really playing hardball politics, what do the compassionate, what are the compassionates supposed to do in that sense? Um, and I suppose in the, in the context of what you said in terms of the state, is it that you need to seize state power to kill them with kindness or compassion? Um, is that where you're going, or is there some, some other kind of way? And then my second question, again, I'll, I'll stop here, I'll just try to wrap it up, is um, I, th I seem to see this kind of trend in sort of uh, a turn towards emotion or kindness or compassion, in, particularly in the, U in the U.S. sort of um, academic and pop culture from writers like Jonathan Franzen and George Saunders to even really um, caustic comedians uh, like... Mark Maron or um, Michael Keaton was, you know, talking about compassion on the radio recently. And so I wonder if this whole turn towards compassion is being heard more because it's coming from males and whether that is because it's, uh, you know, a genderized reform particular to the male community and, you know, which has made it become more mainstream. And, you know, what role do women or women, can women play? Because, I, you know, you, you, we've been in the game for a long time, so... I think those are both very good points. I would add another example to, to the first question, which is what do um, tolerant how do, how do tolerant people deal with intolerant people? And you know, I think this is some of what uh, the Dutch have dealt with, been trying to deal with lately. How do they deal with very sort of intolerant, homophobic uh, immigrant communities who are very religious? So I think it's a big 
it's, it's, a, it's a great question. Um, I don't have an answer. Um, I'd be lying to you if I gave you some, you know, said I did. Um, I think, you know, the first step is to understand it and to understand how you build, how you train young people in compassion, in empathy, in, in you know, it might even begin with pity. Pity's not as nice a, an emotion as compassion because it sort of puts you in a position of superiority over this. Whatever it takes in education systems and so on, uh, I think we need to understand those processes and how to build that in into our education. Um, when you have uh, segregated religious educational systems uh, that are opposed to some of those techniques, uh, I, think that's a, I think that's a problem. Um, in the United States, it's, I think the problem is partly that rigidity, that black and white thinking in, in part that goes along so well with the religious, uh, uh, what is it, arrogance, I guess I would say. And it seems while, while the religious right in the United States and elsewhere pre- pretends that they're quite compassionate, uh, because they do charitable work and so on. I find them actually quite lacking in basic human empathy uh, for others very often because you know, they, they know already what the answer is because they have scriptures that were written by God. And that limits their imagination, I think, quite a bit. Um, I tend to blame everything on the religious right, though, so you know, there's, there's more to it than that. Um, you're absolutely right about gender. Um, one is one more th- case where, uh, you know, once men discover something, it becomes trendy. Uh, men still do dominate the world of politics and media and so on. So if they if they discover something, then it's going to be more heard about. Even in academics, uh, you know, uh, uh, Robin kindly pointed out that I've done I've done a lot to. Promote the idea of emotions in protest as a field of study. Um, there are plenty of women who are writing about the women's movement, who are writing about emotions and social movements before I was, and I think it's fair to say didn't weren't paid much attention to because it was such a girly thing. Um, and once men start paying it, started paying attention to it, it became a hot topic in the study of social movements. I apologize, but that is, you know, that, that is absolutely true. That is the way these things work. You're absolutely right. Okay. Um, can we have um, the bloke here with the sweater in the middle and then after him, the man at the back? Um, you, you noted that uh, emotions aren't always positive in politics and political action, but you seem to be very positive about compassion. I wondered if there are any uh, times when compassion isn't always such a good thing, particularly in the context of social movements um, and uh, social movement organizations. There's some literature on how uh, pressure groups or social movement organizations are are liable to manipulate people's compassion and other emotions in order to uh, raise funds or to do all sorts of of things which may not be entirely positive. So other times when compassion isn't so great. Uh, definitely. Um, although you know, if raising funds is not necessarily a bad thing if you're doing good, uh, but if you're somehow hiding less compassionate activities and pretending to be compassionate, yeah, that would be somewhat duplicitous. I would say that the, the, the tougher cases are when 
what seems compassionate in the short run may uh, be more detrimental in the long run. So I think the, the, situation that comes to, the situations that come to mind are um, famines uh, and natural disasters where there's an outpouring of money to tr- very traditional charitable organizations. In the U.S., everybody sends money to the Red Cross whenever there's a, a, a hurricane, for example. Um, you know, I'm not saying that's bad, but it's different from uh, putting efforts into long-term infrastructure changes, um, political changes, and so on that you know, might, if you were really hard-headed about it, um, might seem to be, in fact, better in the long run, but might also seem to be more compassionate. So part of it is what's compassionate in the short run and what's compassionate in the long run may, may conflict. I would still say that it's compassionate to figure out in the long run how to, how to save rainforests and so on. That's harder to do in the short run, though. So it's, it's not that uh, compassion excludes thinking. Okay, and the gentleman at the back. Yeah, my question is very similar to that. I was just going to ask, in what ways can compassion or emotion undermine movements, protests, and social change? I don't know if you want to expand on that, or did you already answer that? Yeah, I mean, part of, I think, you know, my answer to the last question would partly address that. Um, uh, you know, maybe another example would be uh, the animal rights movement, which I think is very much based on a gut-level compassion for other species and their suffering. And there are times when the animal rights movement, much as I like it for the most part, uh, runs up against uh, the environmental movement, which has a sort of longer term, uh, they would say, say longer term vision of an ecological balance in which uh, individual animals may suffer, maybe they might even justify hunting in, in, in some cases to cull herds and so on, things that an animal rights person would be very much against. So there, and I, I think the ecologist, you know, some would say that theirs is simply a long-run form of compassion. Others would say compassion is uh, too human an emotion, and we have to be above these human com- uh, emotions. You know, and they're, they're not exactly wrong because there's, you know, there's some scientific evidence on their side uh, but you know, I think they're they're mischaracterizing compassion when you, when you say it's just the short run. Uh, so, some to elaborate a little bit when you're saying. Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to take two questions down here and then two up here. So, first of all, um, at the very front, Christiana, and and then the gentleman next to her after that. Thank you. Hang on, hang on, hang on. <laughs> Thank you very much for the talk. I really enjoyed the emphasis on compassion. Uh, but I, I see a little bit of a problem, which is a bit against what I heard here in, in, from our comments. It seems that compassion is just for certain things, like sort of the good causes, um, you know, like you were saying, famine or human rights. Um, and I think it's a bit hard with something I really like on your talk, which is using emotion for understanding better a situation to let emerge as a kind of cognitive tool because of the connection between emotion and cognition. And that could be also a tool for understanding, you know, the enemy. And I sort of see that some of the 
way the literature has evolved on the study of, of emotion has become this kind of instrumental way in which you select some emotion. So you get anger, that is great to mobilize people, to put them in the street, and then hope for a, And we leave aside some emotion, which I think they're actually very relevant to make a more human um, and compassionate world altogether, which would involve also what now are just seen as the bad sort of people. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I wonder what you think of this. Go ahead. Oh, okay. Sorry, I thought we were. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, sure. There are all sorts of emotions, um, and uh, you know, I would, I wouldn't call emotions good or bad. I would say, you know, they they might be appropriate or inappropriate at certain times. Uh, they might emotions can lead us to do things we regret, but it's usually the actions we're regretting rather than the emotions necessarily that led us to it. Emotions can also disrupt things. So, for example, um, uh, I might be uh, in, a, in a protest march and get really angry at a, at a police officer who's poking me with his nightstick or something and haul off and take a swing at him. Um, I might not regret that in the long run. I probably would. Um, but the people I'm in the protest with might well it disrupts the flow of their intention, what they're trying to do with the march. So, you know, emotions are part of action. So like all action, you know, and all actions can lead us down very different paths that we may later, later regret, we may not, maybe the pr- proudest day of uh, our lives and so on. So, you know, I don't think we can generalize. Emotions may be, you know, bad and good. Also, instead, we could speak of them as, dramatic and even violent emotions as opposed to calmer emotions, perhaps. So, I mean, I, I would say I, I want to be really neutral about are they good, are they bad, which ones are good and which ones are bad. Yeah, but I mean, in, in this election of how the nature has gone, I mean, I do think you can serve as selection. I mean, the It's not been taken well, the fact that they open up to um, say, okay, we want to talk with also people that would not be considered part of social movements to, to grasp their ideas and being criticized very much for allowing that compassion also for people that should be excluded. You know? And I think that is a sign that there are certain emotions that are allowed yeah. and not others. Yeah. And I think it's problematic. Yeah. There are emotions that, that are allowed or disallowed <coughs> in movements. There are also emotions that are studied and not studied by scholars. And we've gone from a period when scholars only studied sort of negative, you know, bad, destructive emotions, regretful emotions. And I think now we, we tend to study emotions like, uh, you know, the love of collective identity, um, the bonds of trust in social networks and so on. We tend to study positive emotions now. And you know, there's no, it's, they're both they're equally arbitrary, and we need to you know, recognize that emotions cut across that dimension. Okay, and this gentleman here. I would like to ask, what do you think about democracy, emotion, and European Union? Do you think emotions do help or do obstacle the European Union? Yeah. That's, a good, that's a good question. It's a, it's a great experiment, and whether you can develop those kinds of solidarities of trust and affection uh, at the level of the whole EU or whether national 
affections, solidarities will, in the end, uh, win out. Um, I mean, I, I would say the challenge is to develop the same kinds of symbols, the same kinds of interactions, the same uh, trust-building exercises, the same uh, sort of political speeches, you know, that, that build nationalism. The challenge is uh, language differences, right? It's, it's hard to build those across, you know, between people who speak different languages, I think, because I think language is a, you know, just such a fundamental set of, it's not just one set of feelings, but it's a whole, it's a whole bunch of feelings. And I think translations are a real challenge and have a, you know, have a very hard time doing that. Um, either way, whether ultimately the EU is a great success or a, a failure, um, I would think it's going to be in part because uh, whether it can build these solidarities or not. So it will be an emotional test, not simply a cognitive one. So. Okay, now um, the, the woman with the dark hair sort of halfway down, can we have her first and then after her the woman with the hat here? Uh, hi. I'm wondering, I'm, I'm from India, which is, um, which is, I suppose, the world's largest democracy, at least in terms of, uh, in terms of a population number. Um, what I'm wondering is, recently we had, we had um, the gang rape of a young woman, um, which, which went on to become a very big political issue and, and also an issue of um, sort of democracy's duty to protect, um, as you talked about. Um, well, I'm, this this kind of leading me to to wonder if if compassion compassion can only be shown by someone who is comfortable in their own being or by by a body that's comfortable in its own being, in sort of its own persona or in a, in, a, in the environment that that it's set in, uh, and only when one one has that sort of comfort will will one be able to sort of show that kind of compassion to 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 things around them really uh, as well as so. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. I, I think compassion probably does require a certain amount of, of, of pride, I would say, which, by which I mean a sense of comfort with who, in your place, in your community, who you are, uh, as opposed to shame uh, and a discomfort with who you are and a sense that you're somehow unworthy. I think it is hard to show compassion then. I think that's, that's a, a really good point. The, the case of the rape is a very good case of what I call moral shocks, that uh, every once in a while something happens, and it's usually something horrible, uh, that really crystallizes people's moral intuitions in a way that gets them out into the street. I mean, there are rapes every day in India, um, probably some as horrific as that. That captured people's imagination. Now, it doesn't, doesn't do it automatically. Obviously, you need media, you need groups spreading the information, mobilizing around it. But it takes um, some kind of focus, it seems to me, of, of, of emotions. And it's, it's not just, clearly not just a cognitive process. It's a strongly, deeply emotional process, and that gets people into the street. And I think most big mobilizations have something like that behind them. Okay, and this woman here. Just to begin with, I wasn't quite sure why um, you 
uh, your comments at the beginning, you didn't see ageism as possibly a discrimination. But actually I did because I'm old, and particularly as an old woman, because often women after a certain age become invisible in society. And that's you know, <laughs> where we suffer a discrimination. That's the beginning. The other thing is about uh, your um, looking at Nazism and sort of looking at understanding evil. You saw it as that. But, um, and you said, well, the Nazis ruled by fear, but it is also true they ruled by love, you know, a, 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 a positive emotion, if you like, love of leaders, country, this kind of thing. And that's a lot more complex to deal with, isn't it? And so I wondered how, you know, you, you would address that. And just lastly, sort of on democracy, um, I would say a wider definition of democracy. It's about participation and, and uh, protection, as you said, but also it's about you know, representation, accountability, and how th those things actually come about in society, isn't it, I, I would say? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, all three very good points. Um, <coughs> yes, ageism, um, and I'm getting there <laughs> myself, so I'm, I'm, I appreciate it much more than I used to. Um, ageism, I think, fits in a lot of ways. Uh, older people who, in fact... Uh, studies show tend to have somewhat milder emotions as, as people age. You know, you call it call it wisdom, whatever. Um, but in fact, people get older people get dismissed. You know, the little old ladies in tennis shoes are sort of image of protesters, right? Um, they're not taken seriously. They're just they're sort of ineffectual, um, cranky, and so on. There are all sorts of stereotypes. They're not as strongly emotional stereotypes as the ones that I mentioned, in part because I think people aren't as afraid. Younger people aren't as afraid of uh, older people as they are of younger people. There's always, with younger people, you know, there's always the worry that they're not going to be properly socialized and so on. Uh, so, so I think that's, that's part of it. So it, it is a bit of an exception to what I was saying about the exclusion. But you, you don't really exclude older people from, you don't, uh, for example, exclude them from voting at a certain age. So what you do, you might exclude them, keep them from driving uh, automobiles, but you don't stop them from voting. So you don't need that emotional stereotyping, perhaps. Um, Nazism, yes, the, there was an enormous love of the homeland, of, the, of your fellow Germans and so on. I mean, nationalism. Nationalism is one of the great examples of collective identity and, and so on. And so it's a, it's a good example of how what seems like a positive emotion, and, and certainly as scholars use it, use it today and talk about collective identities, you know, we're, we usually are talking about movements we like, but it's a, it's a great warning that like any other tool, like any other aspect of human action, it can be used for bad ends as well as good. Uh, and I'm afraid I'm blanking on your third... Uh, Democracy. Democracy as well as participation. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's right. accountability. That sounds right. I'm not, it seems to me that that's partly built into the others. Uh, some control. Some participation is usually participation 
in deciding who is going to be running things and making decisions, right? So there's, I think the accountability we have in most democratic systems is simply to, to vote next time um, unless they do something against the law and then there, there are legal sanctions. So, but yeah, I, I mean, I agree, accountability is certainly part of it. Okay, well, we're coming quite close to the end, so I'm just going to take th- um, three questions that I've seen at the front just all together, and if you could try and be brief, and then you feel free to choose what to answer. Can we have this... What I remember... Uh, this gentleman like in red, and then the gentleman next to, but next to him, and finally this woman in green. Uh, good evening. Uh, I would like to ask you uh, about uh, your opinion about the revolution in Czechoslovakia, because I come from Slovakia, and we or our country underwent a uh, revolution in 1989 and we changed a regime from communism and uh, to capitalism. So I would like to know your opinion because it was about emotion and democracy <coughs> as you speak because uh, the main leader was Václav Havel uh, and uh, he was like a dramatic writer and these people from the theater, I mean actors and singers, joined to, to this group and we changed our regime. So I think that it is very nice example of very calm revolution because it was the name of the revolution is like Velvet Revolution because people and students and young people go to the streets. So I would like um, ask about your opinion. Thank you. Okay, and let's try and keep it quick. Um, yeah. yep. uh, Karl Marx said you make an understanding of the world through your material relation to the world. Now, I would say um, if we had a different means of production, would that, like say, a socialist system, would that cause a, a complete different set of emotions? Okay, thank you. That was very concise. And um, Hi. Uh, in light of the riots in 2011... Um, what I saw, maybe because I'm a young person too, was compassion, first of all, for Mark Durkin's family, and then possibly anger, and what you mentioned as well, humiliation from the police over, over great numbers of uh, time. So I wondered what, what um, emotions you saw from that. Um, certainly the government was quick to call it greed, um, broken Britain. Uh, what emotions you saw from that and also how you felt they sh- maybe whether they did it wrong whether they combated what they saw as greed with um, anger or yeah w- what you saw as the cause and what you saw as possibly the emotions that should have combated the emotions of the riot okay thanks so we've got the velvet revolution changing the means of control of the means of production and the london riot great they're all very succinct questions thank you um let me take them in reverse order, I guess. Um, I think riots almost always are touched off by indignation. And so they are they are usually a form of protest. There usually is anger mixed in there. There is uh, outrage over some government action or some situation. And so it becomes a way of expressing these... Um, Riots have been, in fact, very effective at getting social change, right? They scare elites, and elites often respond and, and give people what they want. So, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a very, it's emotional both for the people 
who are writing and the people who are watching and, and reacting to it. So uh, the, the, the greater and greater acceptance of social movements as a, as a valid form of politics in a way I think has undermined riots as a form of politics and that hasn't necessarily been a good thing for progressive social justice. Yeah, I think, um, I think Marx probably would have been the first to say that if we changed the mode of production, we would change relations between people and we would, with a, with a, you know, under communism as he saw it, um, we would have uh, compassion for people. We would uh, feel a great solidarity for all of our fellow human beings if we didn't have these class divides which are sort of make, make different classes into different species almost so that we just don't have the imagination to feel solidarity with them. So I, I think that's absolutely right. Um, let me talk about revolutions more generally. And I think um, uh, in my reading of, of revolutions, what often happens is a large coalition can come together around one thing and one thing only, and that is their indignation, their anger, their hatred of the current regime. <coughs> often especially if it's a regime that's embodied in one person, one dictator. And it's very easy to focus all those negative emo emotions on that one person. Um, and this is a very, power very powerful for getting people into the streets, getting armies to decide they're not going to support this person anymore, this regime anymore, and all, of, all the things you need for revolutions. The revolutions of 89 were a little different in that it, there were so many of them um, that you didn't need quite as, as much mobilization as you would if you were alone in one country facing this horrible regime uh, and, and maybe its, its ally that would send in tanks. Um, so there's this focus on, this, of, on the negative, I think, in revolutions. What happens if a revolution succeeds is the com various components of the revolutionary coalition can't agree on anything else. Right? And this is why you see fighting, usually for a number of years after a revolution, exactly what you're seeing in, in Egypt now. Um, you know, it's, it's, an, it's, it's a nasty process, but it is very common after revolutions to have fighting because you know, it's, they, they agreed on the negative pole of the moral battery, but not the, the only part of the positive pole was getting rid of this regime. Okay, well, look, I, I just want to, in concluding, want to do two things. The first thing is simply to draw your attention to our speaker next Tuesday, Professor Donatella Della Porta from the European University Institute, and I think you have the details in front of you, and um, we'd very much like to see you there. And the second is, is to thank our speaker. I mean, he's set out before us a striking set of propositions, I think, um, propositions uh, in which... Social movements are construed as emotional machines combining indignation and hope, but yet at the same time they're simultaneously rational as well as emotional. And more generally, he's tried to sketch a position in which we set aside what he called calm, passionless citizenship and instead to put at the centre of our study of politics the idea that emotions are a normal and pervasive part of human life. So I'd ask you not just to show your thanks to our speaker, but also our pleasure at the speaker by uh, clapping the <laughs> <for> that. <laughs> Thank you.